good morning. Happy New Year. Everyone's a little groggy because you stayed up too late last night, right? Well, day one of uh, enacting those resolutions is here, right? If one of your resolutions was to be in church, you're doing pretty good, right? So you can celebrate that, at least. Um, I was thinking New Year's resolutions are a funny thing. Uh, it's sort of, I feel like, our attempt to, to, to live the life that, that we've always wanted. So a lot of times when we make a resolution, there's something that we weren't doing that we want to start doing. So I, I wasn't working out or saving money, and I want to start doing those things. Or there's something that we were doing that we want to stop doing. I was drinking pop, and I want to stop drinking pop. That's a real-life one for me. I like pop. That's going to be hard to give up. Right? But it's, it's, we look at our life and we sort of reflect and think on these things that we were or weren't doing and how do we want to change so that we can live a more happy, healthy, fulfilled life uh, in the new year. But what I think is interesting is that there was a university research study that said only about 8% of those resolutions actually make it a full year. So we want to live a happier, healthy, more fulfilled life, but we don't want to put the work into it too much, right? I don't want to get too crazy. But I think the narrative around that idea of a New Year's resolution is how do we find the life that we've always wanted? How, how do we live happy, healthy, and fulfilled? And, and I don't think that's a, a wrong or a bad thing to think about. I think it's probably pretty healthy to walk through that cycle and that process as we step into a new year. But I don't think the idea of a New Year's resolution, I don't think it goes far enough. And so I, I want to push into that question today of what does it mean and what does it look like to live the life that we were called to live? How do we experience the depth and the beauty and the richness of life that Jesus calls us to? I mean, Jesus tells us that he's come that we might have life and have it to the full or the abundance. So what does that mean and how do we do that and how does it all fit together? And essentially this morning, what I'm going to argue is that I think to live and experience the, the depth and the richness and the beauty of life that God calls us to means that we have to live life going all in. We have to give it all over to him completely. And so I, I want to spend some time this morning fleshing that out. What does that mean? What does it look like? How do we begin to take steps in that direction? And when we follow God and when we surrender ourselves fully to him, how do we stay rooted and anchored in the midst of being obedient to what he's called us to? There was a man by the name of, of William who was born in England in the mid-1700s, 1759. And William was born to a, a rather wealthy family, uh, politically connected in the British government and uh, lots of financial resources. And so William was, was trained in some of the finest English prep schools that there are. And, and one summer, his, uh, his parents decided to have him switch to a different school to experience um, different teachers and a different perspective. And so he went to live with his aunt and uncle in, in another town and, and attend school there. And while he was there, his aunt and uncle, who were devout believers, uh, began to speak into William's life. And they, they began to have a, a really profound impact on his spiritual growth and development. And that was something, that, that spiritual foundation that stayed with William for a long time. But as he got older and as he stepped into the college years, he went away to Cambridge to study. And, and when he left to go to Cambridge, he, he sort of departed from that spiritual foundation that his aunt and uncle had laid. And, and he began to, uh, to be a sort of a, a partier, spending nights out late. And one of his classmates said, you know, William would often come back late at night and, and he would get the rest of them, hey, let's go out again. And he said, you know, he was, he was so charismatic and such a good leader that you were just kind of drawn to him. And so a lot of us would leave the dorm and we'd go out and hang out with William and our uh, attendance at lectures would, would really suffer the next day. Well, William uh, finished his time at Cambridge and he graduated. And uh, a few years after graduating from Cambridge, he was elected to the British Parliament. 
And he would tell you he spent the first few years of his time in parliament and he, he didn't really accomplish much. He said the only distinction, if you looked at his life in that time period, the only distinction of his time was that he was in parliament, which he said was a feat, but he didn't really do much. He was sort of living life on the sidelines, kind of watching things take place, just sort of biding his time, living a comfortable life. And then one season, William felt this deep sense of discontent and began to ask, there's got to be something more to this. And he remembered that, that sort of spiritual foundation that his aunt and uncle laid in his life early on, and he began to think and reflect on that. And he, he would tell you, looking back, that he entered a sort of season of, of kind of deep sorrow as he was reflecting on his life and some of the time that he had wasted. And William Wilberforce got really serious about his faith again, and over the next year or so, God began to lay on his heart that he needed to use his time in Parliament to begin to work against the evils of, of the slave trade in the British Empire. And so William Wilberforce entered his, his calling in Parliament with a new sense of, of drive and determination and direction to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And he began to introduce resolutions. He introduced 12 of them to try to abolish slavery in the British Empire. And now William, who was once well-connected politically with lots of resources, he found himself being vilified and being uh, uh, pushed back against and said, no, 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 we can't do this. It's, it's not good for the economy. It's not, it's not helpful for anybody to, to abolish slavery. But William Wilberforce wasn't willing to stand on the sidelines. He wanted to go all in, to pull himself totally and completely into this thing that God had called him to. And he fought hard to see slavery abolished. And finally, in 1803, the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire. He continued to push. And finally, by 1833, slavery as a whole system was abolished entirely. And William found this out on his deathbed. Three days after he died, it would be, it would be passed. Thanks in large part to William Wilberforce, who said, I'm not content to stand on the sidelines. I want to pour my life all in to this thing that God has called me to. Even when it cost him, even when the people who used to be his colleagues now looked on him with disdain and with contempt because of this social structure and institution that had been such a part of the British Empire, he was now challenging. He lost friends. He lost resources. He lost some respect in those who, who had power. But he found a new deep sense of fulfillment as he was willing to give himself wholly and obediently to the call and the mission of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to look at today. What does it mean and what does it look like for you and I to pour our lives all into whatever Jesus is calling us to? How do, how do we do that? In Mark chapter 8, there's this, this interesting scene that takes place between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus is traveling uh, around the villages of the area of Caesarea Philippi. And, and as he's walking with the disciples, he, he asks this question. He says, hey, what do people say about me? Who, who do people say that I am? And you can kind of imagine the disciples scrambling a little bit. Well, what do people say? And well, uh, some say that you're Elijah. Come back. Another one said, well, some say you're John the Baptist or, or one of the other prophets. And, but Jesus pushes the issue a little bit more. And he says, but what about you guys? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. And Peter probably thinks he's nailed the answer, right? We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The disciples believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, yes, Peter, he's got the right answer, doesn't he? But if you read Mark chapter 8, Jesus says something really interesting. Rather than saying, yes, Peter, you got the right answer, it says that Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. 
Why? What an interesting response that Peter confesses, yes, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, oh, no, 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 don't tell anybody this. Why would he say that? Immediately after Jesus, or Peter says that, Jesus says, well, listen, let me, let me tell you what's going to happen in my life. And Jesus begins to prophetically speak about how he's going to be handed over to the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he's ultimately going to die, and, and three days later will rise again. And, and Jesus speaks about what's actually going to happen to the Messiah. And when you read the story, Peter comes up and it says, Peter rebukes Jesus. This takes some courage. I I imagine Peter kind of walking up and taking Jesus by the arm, you know, kind of grabbing him forcibly and saying, Jesus, 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 we we, got to talk about this. And and I imagine Peter said something like this, Jesus, if if you're going to start this whole Messiah movement, if if you're truly going to be this leader, you can't go around talking about your death. It's not good PR. It's not good for for public perception of of this movement that we're trying to start. You've got to stop talking like this. And and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, Jesus doesn't mince words, huh? I don't want to be Peter in that instance. Like, ooh, that hurts. He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you don't have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. And we begin to see why Jesus warned them not to tell him about him as the Messiah. Because the disciples have this misperception of who and what the Messiah is. You see, the disciples, they think that the Messiah is going to be someone who ushers in a military kingdom, who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to lead a revolution. We get further hints of this in Mark chapter 10, when James and John, they're they're walking with Jesus and they say, "Uh, Hey Jesus, when you enter your glory, can we have the positions of honor? We'd really like to sit at your right and left hand. And what the disciples want, they want power and they want influence and they want these positions of honor as they imagine Jesus leading this revolution against Rome and and, and bringing in a kingdom of peace. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm I'm not bringing in a physical kingdom of power and influence. Jesus says, in fact, I'm going to lay down my life. And he begins to reframe for them what the work of the Messiah is and looks like. And then Jesus says this, and I think this is, I think one of the more challenging and, and, and difficult passages of Scripture. He says this, verse 34. This is right after his conversation with Peter. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said this. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And essentially what Jesus says is this. He says, you want to be my disciple? You want to follow after me? He says, you've got to be willing to go all in. You've got to be willing to lay down your life. This idea of of going all in, I think, means to fully and faithfully follow the call of Jesus. If we are going to be his disciples, if we are going to follow after him, his question is, will you fully surrender yourself and will you faithfully follow me? And Jesus says, listen, if you're going to come after me, this isn't, this isn't a half-hearted thing. He says, if you're going to come after me, you must be willing to deny yourself. And I think at least in part, denying myself means that I lay down my agenda for my life. My life doesn't become about what I want it to be about anymore. Right, Peter has to give up his agenda for what he thinks Jesus is going to do. 
Peter's agenda is that Jesus would lead a revolution and set up an earthly kingdom and that he would get a position of influence. And Jesus says, no, if you're going to follow me, lay that down. Surrender your agenda for my life. And then he says this. He says, take up your cross. And I think to take up our cross, at least in part, means that we take up both the mission and the suffering of Jesus. We can't choose between. We can't say, yes, I'll take the mission of the gospel, but you can leave the suffering out. I think the two go hand in hand. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, lay down your agenda for your life. Take up my agenda, my call for your life. Be about the mission of of Jesus to go and make disciples, to bear witness to the good news of the life and hope that we have in Jesus. And Jesus says, this is an all-in thing. You want to save your life? Give it up. Surrender it. Give it over to me. And that's hard. I don't know about you, but I, I don't really like the idea of surrendering my agenda for my life. Because I, I feel like if I'm in charge of my agenda, then I'm, I can exercise an element of control. I can pick and choose the, the decisions that seem best for me. But Jesus says, listen, if you're going to come after me, you have to lay all that down and be willing to go where I call you. And as I thought about this, you know, I, I opened with a story of, of William Wilberforce. And even as I said that, probably some of us, if we, were, if we were thinking about that story, you thought, that's a great story, but I'm not going to be William Wilberforce. I'm probably not going to bring about profound social change. I'm, I'm not going to be the mo- next Mother Teresa. I'm not going to be the next Martin Luther King. I, I'm, I'm a simple person. I mean, what, what does it do for me to, to deny myself and to, to be faithful to Jesus' call? I mean, that, that's great, but I'm probably not going to do something like William Wilberforce. But what I love is over and over again throughout scriptures that, that God uses ordinary things and people fully surrendered to him to have a profound impact for the sake of the gospel. In the feeding of the 5,000 people, this is a miracle that Jesus does. There's, there's 5,000 people who, who are hungry and have no food. And there's one little kid who has a snack that his mom packed. Five loaves of bread and two fish. And the disciples almost, if you read the story, it's almost apologetically like, oh, we, I mean, we've got this snack, but not enough. And Jesus takes that ordinary five loaves and two fish, that snack that that kid had packed, and he uh, multiplies it to feed 5,000 people. When you look at the call of the disciples, the disciples are not these like awesome, profound, well-educated superstar leaders. The disciples are ordinary people like you and me. They're blue-collar workers. They're fishermen who had a family business. Uh, They're a tax collector who was hated by the people of the society. But Jesus says, will you come after me? Will you go all in? If you're willing to surrender your life to me, God can take ordinary things, ordinary lives like yours and mine, and if we'll surrender them completely to him, there's the capability and the opportunity for God to do profound things both in us and through us. Because ordinary things, lives, people, situations surrendered to Jesus become filled with the divine possibility for what God might do. And so the question in front of us is, will you and I, are we willing to go all in? Will we deny ourselves, laying down our agenda for our life, and will we take up the mission and the suffering, the cross of Christ, to be faithful to what he calls us to? Now, I I hope this morning that there's all sorts of questions resonating. What does this look like? How do we begin to take those steps? What sort of obstacles and roadblocks are we going to face? Because that's what I want to put in, uh, push into next is what does it mean and what does it look like to go all in, to surrender our lives to Jesus? What are some of the, the, the obstacles that we might face in the process? 
And as we push into this, I want to use the story of the people of Israel as we look at their journey to kind of flesh this out on a, on a practical, tangible level for us. And so we're going to look a little bit at Deuteronomy, a couple chapters in the first uh, eight chapters of Deuteronomy. And the people of Israel, at this point in their journey, they've been at a place where they have been in slavery in Egypt. They've been forced uh, under heavy-handed labor to make bricks and help build the cities of the empire of Egypt. And they're tired and they're worn out and they've been groaning and crying out to God. And finally, God answered the prayer of the people of Israel. And, and the story of Exodus is the story of God's people being brought to freedom. Deuteronomy picks up at a place in the story where the nation of Israel, they're, they're right by the Jordan River. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land, this place that God has said, listen, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you to the promised land. This is going to be your land to inherit. And they're right there. They're right on the edge of God's promise. And, and Moses, Moses isn't allowed to enter the promised land. Because of his disobedience, Moses now has to select Joshua, and Joshua will lead the people into the promised land. But Moses doesn't get to go. But Moses, he leaves us with this, this I, think, I think Deuteronomy is a beautiful book. Because Moses, even though he's not allowed to go, this is sort of his last sermon, his last wisdom insight that he gives to the people of Israel to say, hey, I can't go with you. I'm going to leave you with these words, now go. And so we pick up in Deuteronomy at this point, in the story of the nation of Israel, where they're right on the edge of freedom, right on the edge of what God promised them. And the question that they have to face is, are they willing to go all in and to trust the thing that God has called them to? So what does it mean? What does it look like for you and I to be a people who are all in, fully surrendered? What are the roadblocks that we face? And with those questions in mind, I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6, it says this. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, along the coast. Go to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I've given you this land. Go and take possession of it that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. All right, so here again, here's the promise of God. Go in and take this land. God has given it to you. This is his promise. This land is yours. Go, take it. And the question for them is, will they go all in? Will they say, okay, Jesus, or okay, God, we're going to trust your, your plan, your direction for us, and we're going to give ourselves wholly and completely to this thing that you've called us to? That's the question that's before them. So what does this mean and what does it look like? One of the first things that I see here is that if we're going to be faithful to the call of God, if we're going to go all in, surrender our agenda to him, is that sometimes it means leaving places that are familiar and comfortable and safe. Notice what he says there. He says, you've stayed long enough at this mountain in Horeb. Break camp. Go into the country of the Amorites. But, but look at what's happening here. They're, they're in this camp. This camp is now familiar. They know what's here. And, and God wants them to break camp and go into the country of the Amorites. That's a people that we're going to have to fight, by the way, for the nation of Israel. And so, and so if I'm then, I'm saying, okay, you want me to leave what's familiar, and you want me to go over there and face this opposition that I know I'm going to have to face, that doesn't feel safe or comfortable for me. But there's the call of God, break camp from this place and go into what I'm calling you into next. 
And if we are going to be the kind of people who go all in, who say, I want to lay down my life, deny myself, lay down my agenda, and I want to be faithful and obedient all in with what God is calling me to, there are times and places where God is going to say, leave behind what's known and familiar, and I want you to step into the unknown. And it's not safe, and it doesn't feel like it's under your control, but that's okay. Trust me. Take the step. And I think for us sometimes this looks profoundly simple and ordinary, but I think it can be filled with tons of possibility and opportunity. For us, what if it looks like at work, God says, hey, I want you to have an intentional spiritual conversation with the other two or three people that work in your cube. And we go, well, God, I'm not... That's not, I, I'm not comfortable. That's not me. I'm, I'm not comfortable having those conversations. Uh, that's unknown territory. What, what if I get in trouble for having that conversation? What if they think I'm some kind of religious wacko and they don't want to talk to me anymore? That's not really my thing. I, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. It doesn't feel safe to me. Or, or what if God says, hey, next time you're meeting with that client of yours uh, and they start talking about their financial or their, their relational problems, I want you to offer to pray for them. Well, God, I... I don't really pray out loud in front of people. I don't feel comfortable doing that, but yet you can't shake that God is calling you to engage spiritually with that person or that place or that thing. And the question for us becomes, will we leave behind what's known? Break camp, God says. Step into what's next. And will we be willing to take a step into the unknown that God is calling us to, even though it doesn't feel safe and feel comfortable and it doesn't feel under our control? I think the other thing that it means to go all in is, in verse 8, it says, see, I've given you this land. He says, go. Go in and take possession of it. And so I think there's two things that are happening here. On the one hand, they have to lay down this place that's safe and comfortable. They have to be willing to give that up. But then they have to take a step of obedience. And they have to actually step into what God is calling them to. And so there's both a laying down of their agenda, we could stay where it's safe, and both a taking up a, a, a position of obedience into what God's calling them to. Because if they just break camp and don't move, now they have no shelter and they still haven't made a motion. They're just there. No, God says, break camp here and go there. Leave behind what's safe and what's comfortable and familiar and step into this next thing that I'm calling you to and, and, and go, be obedient. And here's the thing, obedience, obedience is not what causes our salvation. Obedience is what flows out of our salvation. I am not obedient so that I earn the favor of God we have God's favor. He's given us his love and his grace. We are obedient because we want to be obedient to a God who's loving and gracious toward us, and we know that his plan has our best interests at heart. Even if it means going to a place that's not safe and not known and not comfortable. Will we go all in? Will we lay down our agenda for our life and be willing to step boldly and obediently into what God has for us? So what are the challenges that we face in the middle of this? Because I think it's hard to be obedient. I think it's hard to give up what's known and what's safe. It's hard to lay down my agenda. And I think, again, in the story of the people of Israel, I think we see two roadblocks to their obedience that are there and that I think resonate with our story. I think one of the first roadblocks that we see is, is their own sense of perspective. The people of Israel, they have a tendency to focus on the obstacles and opposition rather than on the character of a God who is able to provide for them. Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21. This is Moses speaking. He says, See, the Lord your God has given you the land. 
Go, take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors told you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Do this, he says. Then all of you, you came to me and said, well, let's send some men ahead to spy out the land and they can bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns we'll come to. And Moses says, well, the idea seemed good to me and so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe, and they left and went up to the hill country and they came to the valley of Eshkol and they explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it's good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 26, but you were unwilling to go up You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Verse 27, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers, the spies he's talking about here, have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are strong and and uh, and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. And we saw the Anakites there. So the the spies go into the land and, and they come back and they bring some of the fruit and the produce of the land and they say, Man, this is some of the best farmland we've ever seen. I mean, look at, look at the fruit that comes out of this land. And they said, oh yeah, by the way, the cities, man, they are walled. And those walls, they, they go to the sky. And they've got these renowned warriors, the Anakites that are there, and, and they're, they're tall and they're much stronger than we are. And, and the people of Israel, they know that there's this promise. God has said, go, take the land. It's yours. But all they can see are all the obstacles and oppositions, all the reasons why they can't do it. The, the walls are too big and the people are too strong. There's nothing, we can't do this thing. So we're just not, we're not going to do it. And Moses says they rebelled and actually decided not to enter this place of promise that God had ta- called them to. And I think often we do something similar. God calls us to something and we immediately look at all the, the obstacles and the reasons and the opposition why we can't do what God is calling us to. So God calls us to have an intentional spiritual conversation with that person at work. And, and we immediately say, well, you know, I could get in trouble with HR. And what if I get fired? And, and, and what if I, I lose this friendship because I, I try to, to ask them about their faith? And what happens then? Or, or what if I, I pray with this client that God is calling me to pray with? And, and they decide to withdraw their contract because they don't want to do business with a religious fanatic. And yet that call of God burns on our heart. Pray with that person. Have a conversation with this person. But I think sometimes we get so focused on all the obstacles and the opposition that we lose sight of God's character and the fact that God goes with us into those places. I think the second obstacle that we see is a sort of been there, done that, didn't work out mentality. So as you continue to read the story of the people of Israel, at the end of chapter one, they rebel. They say, okay, we're not going to go up. And God says, you know what? Don't. My blessing's not on you. They decide to do it anyway. They go, well, maybe we'll try this. And God says, don't do it. They get beat by the Amorites at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 says this. It says, then we turned back and we set out towards the wilderness along the route to the Red Sea as God had directed us. And for a long time, we made our way around the hill country. They're back to wandering again, right? Their way around the hill country. If you read the rest of their story, you realize that for 40 years, the nation of Israel has been wandering through the desert. And there's moments where they're frustrated and where they're lost. And I think sometimes, like the people of Israel, we think, you know, there's, there's times when I've tried to follow Jesus and we've encountered a, a difficult place that seemed to lack purpose. There's moments where we say, God, I've tried to be obedient. And like the Israelites, I feel like you just brought me to a place where I'm wandering throughout the desert. This seems purposeless. What in the world are you doing? And so the next time God calls us into something, we're hesitant because we say, you know what? I tried that before. And I felt like it led me to this difficult place that I didn't understand what God was doing. 
So the question becomes, in that place, in the obstacles that we face, how do we begin to take the, the obedient steps into what God is calling us to? How do we do that? I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to hold to this truth that God is with us, that God carries us, and that God fights for us. All throughout Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 2, listen to this, Deuteronomy 1 verse 30 says, the Lord your God who was going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reach this place. Chapter 2, verse 7, he says, The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through the vast wilderness. And what Moses reminds the people of Israel of is he says, be fully in, be all into this thing that God has called you to and know that God goes before you and he is fighting for you. He's preparing the way. He, I love how Moses says, God carried you like a father carries his son. And I love how he says in chapter two, he says, listen, God is watching over your journey. And so when God calls you to something, may we step obediently into that thing, even though it doesn't feel safe and comfortable and familiar and even though there's risk involved, may we step obediently into that thing, knowing that God has gone before us and prepared the way for us. That doesn't mean it's always going to go well. You might have that spiritual conversation with someone at work, and you might get called into HR, and you might get fired. I don't think the gospel says, hey, pour your life into me, and it's risk-free. No, there's that call of Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross. But even if that were to happen, can we trust that on the other side of being fired or suffering on the cause of the gospel that we're still in the hand of God? And that we have no idea who waits on the other side of our obedience. Who is waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? And they're waiting for the feet of an obedient person to engage them there in a place of need and to bring truth and to bring hope to the gospel of Jesus. So I pray that we would go all in. So in the middle of this, how do, how do we stay grounded and rooted? Deuteronomy chapter 8, I think Moses uh, gives the people some, some good wisdom here. I'm going to hit this quick. Chapter 8, he says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord has promised you. Verse 2, he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. And he did this to humble and test you in order that what was in your heart might be known. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. A couple things I want us to take out of here. Notice verse 1, Moses says, Be careful to obey every command. And what he means is, is live intentionally aligned and saturated in the word and the command that God has brought you. Moses previously has given the people the law of God, the words to live by and to order their life by. And so what Moses says is, he says, listen, he says, be careful because this place that you're entering, there, there are, are people of different cultures and ideas and ideologies, and it's going to be tough and you're going to face opposition. And so he says, be careful to be a people whose lives are saturated in the word of God so that you know how to live and engage and interact with people. So that you may, he says, so that you may live and prosper rightly as God calls you to. As you live your life saturated carefully, aligned with the word of God. He then goes on and he says, he says this, he says, and, and remember. 
Remember the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and, and led you to this new place. And there's two things I think that, that he tells him here to remember. He says, remember, one, God's provision, that when you didn't have anything to eat, God brought you manna to eat and fed you miraculously. The other thing that he says to remember, he says, remember God's purpose. You wandered in the desert 40 years, and there were places where God brought you to a place of hunger where you go, what are we going to eat? And he says, there, in that place of need, God met you and God fed you. Why? Notice what Moses says. He says, to humble you and to be able to know what was in your heart. And those seasons of testing aren't so God knows what's in the heart of Israel. God knows. When we encounter places of testing, do you know what happens? Is we become aware of the contents of our own heart. And in those places where we step obediently to what God calls us and we encounter need and we encounter opposition and we encounter conflict, we begin to be aware of all of these things that are in our heart. And at the end of this passage, Moses says that God disciplines those he loves. And the idea of discipline isn't, isn't just about punishment. If it's just about punishment, that's poor discipline. Discipline is about the character formation of the people who are being disciplined. It's about becoming the mature people that we are designed and created to be. And so as the people of Israel have stepped boldly into these places that God has called them to, as they've gone all in, he says, that place that seems purposeless where you were wandering through the desert, remember that I provided for you there and that I did a work of formation and transformation in your life where you were made aware of the contents of your heart and I reformed and reshaped you to be the kind of people who are ready to step into the promised land that God had for them. So here's the question for us is, will we be the kind of people who go all in? Will we be willing, like Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, to lay down our agenda for our life? Even if that means leaving what's safe and what's comfortable and what's familiar, even if it means stepping into the unknown to take the ordinary, everyday routine of our life and to say, Jesus, it's yours. To wake up on a, on a Monday morning as we head back to work and say, God, would you interrupt my agenda today? Bring me a meaningful conversation with someone that you want me to talk to or, or someone that you want me to pray with and help me to, to be courageous to step into that. God, I surrender my, my control of my finances, my career, my vocation. What, what might that look like? The third point uh, on there, I'm going to kind of hit it and move on, is beware of pride. Towards the latter part of this chapter, uh, in verse 10 and 11, I read it on your own. I think it's, it's really important. He says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord, verse 11, but be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Verse 14, he says, if you forget him, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. Verse 18, he says, but remember, it's God who gave you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. And really what Moses is saying here is everything you think you have, all that comes from God anyway. When, when we don't live in surrender, all we're doing is holding back from God what's already his. Our life, our resources, everything that we have comes from him. It's all a gift of his grace. And so when we surrender, really what we're doing is saying, God, when I lay down my agenda, my life is yours anyway. I'm giving back to you what you already own. We are simply stewards of the life that God has given us. So beware of pride. But I want to come back to this place and ask this question. So how do we begin to respond in the middle of this? What does it look like to be a people who go all in? Where do we start? What steps do we take? And, and I've got four things that I want to hit real quick, and th these are simple. 
I think so much of our, our walk with Christ is simple, and we want to make it complicated, and we want to make it difficult, and we want to try to rationalize our way out of being obedient, really, I think, a lot of times. But as we begin to respond to this, I want to challenge us with four things, to seek, pray, surrender, and go. I want to challenge us to spend time thinking and praying and reflecting, seeking the face of God, asking, God, where, where are you calling me to surrender? Is there a place in your life where you've been retaining control of, of your life, your finances, your career, whatever, and God's saying, I want you to surrender this to me? And we're saying, yeah, God, but that's not familiar. It's not safe. I, I'd like to be in control. And he says, let it go. Then I want us to be people who pray for the courage to surrender. I think even that act of surrendering back to God is something that I need his grace to do because I'll admit I'm the first one to be intimidated and scared at the idea of surrendering to God. And then I pray that we would actually surrender those things as, as we seek God's face and he brings those things to light. As we pray about it, let us actually surrender those things over and then go. Live out obediently the thing that God has called us to. So what does that look like for you this morning? Where is God calling you to step in obediently? And may we, like the disciples in Mark chapter 8, be willing to deny ourselves to take up our cross, to lose our life in Jesus, and to take up his mission, and really in so doing, find true life. And we're going to take communion this morning, and I think, I think in a lot of ways, communion is, is maybe one of the only appropriate responses we could have this morning. Because part of what happens in communion is that we remember God's sacrifice for us. And so I pray that we spend this moment reflecting and thinking about the reality that Jesus offered up his life for us wholly and completely dying the death that we were meant to die and in so doing he provides for us to be forgiven and to be saved and to know true life and true hope in him I think though too in communion we, we tangibly encounter the grace of God and so this morning as we partake of the elements in a couple moments think about a place in your life where God's calling you to surrender and a place where you're going I, I, I don't have the courage to do it and say, God, in your grace, would you give me the courage to be able to let this thing go? And know that in this moment, we encounter the grace of the risen Jesus.